Good morning, everyone. It is, uh, it's so good to be with you all, to get to worship with you, and to really just to, to, to witness these baptisms. Um, I, I love this mentality versus we used to kind of do once a year a big out, outdoor baptism, but I was saying I love this, like, this more consistent reminders of life transformation happening in the community. Uh, that and baby dedications are just, you know, it's, it's the two best, two best things we do. And um, if that's something that interests you, in the future, just let us know. We always schedule it once we have the first person tell us they would like to be baptized. We'll schedule it, and then we get a couple add-ons. I I, um, I told the baptism class last week this illustration, not because I enjoy sharing it, but because it's a good illustration, is um, I've always had a, uh, a rough relationship with exercise, you could say. And um, this past spring, I did something I'd never done. I started jogging consistently. Uh, but what I did, because I live in a very... Uh, tight-knit community. My in-laws are two houses down. We like know all the neighbors, all that. And uh, it's definitely, you know, a, a little insecurity, but I didn't want to be seen running in the neighborhood. Uh, first of all, because I was starting at like a 12 and a half minute mile. Uh, but second of all, it's like, I, it's just, I didn't want to pick it up for one week and then abandon it the next. And then people say, oh, I didn't know Chad was jogging. And they say, no, he's not jogging. But anyways, so what I did for the first like month or two was as soon as I got on my feet, I got out of the neighborhood quickly and I finished my run out of the neighborhood and then could walk back in when I was all done. But then this moment happened, it's probably about two months in where I, first of all, got my mile time to single digits. And then second of all was just, I had proven to myself that I was able to do this consistently enough that, that I'm okay for someone to see me doing that. I was okay for that to become a little bit more of my identity. And since an illustration here is, is you might come to faith and you might come to church for a while trying to kind of figure out what this is all about and what this looks like and, and, and begin to slowly learn and listen and implement into your life. And then you get to this point where you say, I, I, I know that this is who I am. This is my identity. And I am ready for my community to know that this is my identity. And so that's what we witnessed today was these three individuals saying, I am ready for my community, my friends and family, my church community to know that this is who I am, that this is who I belong to, you could say. And that's a perfect primer for where we're going with today's message. Um, today is the first Sunday of Advent, as you can tell. And uh, we're, uh, you know, moving into that every, every Sunday. We'll have a couple more decorations up. Father Christmas over there, he, he, he leads up that passion. Um, but uh, today, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, is the first Sunday of Advent. And we've actually been doing an Advent series since, like, October, and we're calling it Threads of Redemption. It's Old Testament themes and narratives that point to the need of an incarnate God, a God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And what the story we're going to look at today uh, is, is a well-known one, uh, but it's interesting. It's found in 1 Samuel 8. If you brought your Bible, you can open up to that. Some Sundays we're jumping around. Today we're going to spend most of the time in 1 Samuel 8. Uh, but if not, you can always read on the screen right behind me. But 1 Samuel 8, it's a well-known, pivotal story where the people of God choose not God. The people of God come to Samuel, the the, the high priest and prophet at that time, and, and demand a king of their own like, other, like all the other nations. They said, we want to be like all the other nations. And it's a sad moment of the people stubbornly choosing what is not good for them. I was uh, thinking about this. Sorry, I'm getting told to lower my mic. There we go. 
I was thinking about this, and uh, uh, it hit me that every child, at least once in their lifetime, every child of good parents, um, at least once in their life, will envy their friends of, let's say, much looser parents, right? Uh, this will happen. You know, I was raised... Um, we were fed very healthy, nutritious, balanced meals, and that's wonderful. But I knew my friend's houses that had the whole drawer with just boxes of king-size candy bars. And this is like, looked like what liberation looked like. This was, this was beautiful. I just, I, 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 yeah, and this is out all the time. This is just Halloween. Like, yeah, no, just go for it whenever, you know, there it is, right? Uh, we were raised to not watch TV or play video games on school nights. Uh, but Gus's house across the street, not only did they still have the Hot Pockets and all that, uh, but they also had all of the mature rated video games that I wasn't even bold enough to ask for in our house. And so, so you just go play over there, you know? Every, every kid of, of, of uh, good parenting, at least once in their life, has envied, um, like I said, that, that more looser parenting. Um, let me give you another illustration. Have you ever envied your dog? Looked at their day, looked at yours, and envied <laughs> your dog. I went through this consistently when we, our, our second child was born, and was just new, newborn, and you know, and, and a three-year-old same time. We were renovating our house, and I remember just like looking at everything in the day and feeling so stressed and so exhausted, and looking at my dog, and I was like, "You've got like a couple of naps planned today. That's it. <laughs> That's your day. That's all of it." Uh, um, but yeah, sometimes we can be in a position where that's not honestly what you would want, but something about it, it just looks so good, so tempting, so, so envious of something that is not actually better for you. Uh, and that is true in 1 Samuel 8. The people of God are envying their neighbors, uh, but there is also a deeper and much more human reason behind what is bringing up this request. And, and I have found that for myself, if we slow down, and dig for the very human elements in scripture, it becomes much more relatable. Um, I, I was raised in the faith, always been a, a strong believer. I went to Point Loma for my undergrad down in San Diego just to surf. And uh, somewhere in there, I, you know, they take, make you take some, some classes and, and I just fell in love with biblical scholarship. Seeing the, the, the real people, the real socioeconomic world behind the text made it suddenly go from uh, a magic book to a powerful book, but, but with very real people in it. And I began to see my life in it more and more. And, and there's a bit of that happening in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You see, up until this point, the people, since leaving Egypt, since leaving slavery, have been uh, in a theocracy. They've been a people, a group of tribes that are following God's call. They have been covenant people living in a relationship with God that is built around the law that God gave them. And he would have, at times, high priests uh, who would mediate, or prophets who would be spokesmen uh, for God to the people and be reminders of the covenant that they were a part of. And at times, he would even have judges, people who worked as, as, as agents of God's will, mainly in a military or, or police kind of a position. And in this book, we have a figure named Samuel. And Samuel is the high priest of the time, but he also serves as, as a prophet, a, a, a voice piece of God, as well as a judge at times. Very interesting, someone who kind of holds all those offices. But he was a man of true character and was entrusted with a lot of this. Now let's read in 1 Samuel uh, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1. 
It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel. The name of the secondborn son was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders in Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like the other nations. So yes, they are demanding a king. But you see that there's a real human element that it's not even completely their fault of what brought them to this point. They are seeing a, a, a leadership vacuum they're seeing a, a, a gap. They are worried about what's happening next. We can have this too, right? If, if you come to the end of a presidency and you might be kind of a little anxious of where are we going next? That can be, that can be difficult. That can bring up some fear. And that's really what is driving this for the Israelites this time is fear and panic. As their leader is getting old and they look at his successors, his sons, and they're corrupt. They are taking bribes for themselves. It is a difficult conundrum. The elders have a legitimate concern for justice, but are willing to erode the authority of God for the sake of stability. And Samuel is protective of the integrity of God, but, it, but presents a biased interest in the, things, the way that things have always been done. Namely, that his sons and his legacy would, would assume responsibility after his death. I found this quote uh, from a biblical scholar that, that just really stuck out to me. It says, The elders' initial approach asks us to consider where the church's support of traditional ways of doing things has allowed or perpetuated injustice. Have we raised up leaders who close their eyes to patterns of abuse in the name of protecting the status quo? That's a great, convicting question. Are we too worried to rock the boat? Are we too worried to change things that, that, are, that the church's uh, traditional ways might be producing an injustice? However, the elders' request for a king raises questions about our willingness to grasp for security when the need is for justice. So they demand a king, and it's not the right decision. It's not the right response, but you can, you can feel for them. It's not just out of jealousy to, to conform to societal ways around them or, or tired of of some other uh, nation, they get to, to, to show off the wealth and prosperity and strength and stability of their king, and Israelites talking about how their king is invisible. It's not just that. It's that they are afraid of the future of their nation, the future of their people, to grasp for security when the need is for justice. Let's keep reading in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel... When they said, give us a king to govern us, Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They have not rejected you. Samuel, try not to take this personally. It is less about you and your kids and more about me. We'll get into this a little bit. Just as they have done to me from the days I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also you are doing to you, so they are doing to you. Now listen, listen to their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Okay, if they are demanding this, 
give them what they want, but warn them first what it is they're signing up for. So Samuel reported the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for him commanders of thousands of command, uh, commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap for his harvest and to make his implementations of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olives and orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and uh, of your vineyards and give it to the officers, his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female servants and uh, the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Have you ever made a bad decision out of fear or panic? A bad decision. To where objectively later you can look back and say that was the wrong call, but I, I, was, I was seizing security. I was reaching out and I was afraid. Ryan and I were talking about examples of this and kind of a funny one it was, was Y2K. You can put up this picture. This is not a legit news source. I think this was a tabloid. But still, uh, the fear around this. Now, I was 10, but I still remember hearing uh, some, just the way some adults were talking and hearing on the radio and just feeling a little anxious, you know, of what was going to happen when the clock rolled over into the 2000s. Um, in reality, it was probably a, a hectic year for people in IT, and that was probably it. Um, but there was so much fear and people who made rash decisions, uh, panic buying, uh, you know, uh, was it like bomb shelter food and stuff like that because they were so afraid of what was going to happen. Uh, you know, another one I was thinking about too, I was reading some, some testimonies of, of pastors who regretted they didn't act in this was the Japanese internment camps. Um, now, in one way, I get it. The U.S. was afraid. The U.S. had been attacked. Um, but in another way, you know, I was reading all these stories of, of local pastors who said members of their congregation and neighbors who they knew and loved and trusted were, were taken in their homes and their businesses seized, and, and they re regretted that they never spoke up. They never did anything. Um, but I, I get it. I understand why someone would be in that position uh, when you are being attacked, when you are afraid, when you're panicking. We don't make these best decisions. Ryan's talked about it a couple of times, but me and Ryan both had some uh, freak-out moments in the very start of the church. Ryan's was at uh, the Coffee Bean on 2nd Street, and uh, something over finances, I can't remember exactly what. Um, mine was at a, a meeting of what our worship service would look like, and, and some very creative ideas were proposed, and I, I was freaking out. I had a couple people who were here at that meeting. I was freaking out uh, about, about that's not what I ever imagined this was going to be. Um, and what it really was, was us both realizing that we had given up uh, good jobs at good churches with good pay, uh, with good upward mobility, and we were months away from even getting like a stipend and uh, eating out of our savings and, and uh, living with my parents at the time. And, all, you know, all of this, we had sacrificed so much that we were having these freak out panic moments. And the great thing is we had each other to calm the other down uh, and bring us back to remind us of what we felt called by God to do. 
but we don't make good decisions when we are acting out of fear or panic. Now, the irony of this freakout in 1 Samuel 8 is that this exact scenario is actually what brought Samuel into a position of authority. He was a young temple boy who was uh, serving the high priest Eli, and Eli's sons were corrupt and were stealing the sacrifices for themselves, and God, no one else brought this up, God was the one who said, Eli, your mantle will not go to your kids, it will go to this young boy, Samuel. So even once before, the people witnessed God intervening to protect who was leading his people. But they're jumping the gun. They're not allowing or trusting in God to act. They're jumping the gun. And so they're trying to think of how do we stabilize this government as fast as we can before Samuel's corrupt kids take over. And so they demand a king. Let's keep reading in, uh, in 19. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel they said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like the other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. Literally the things that God has been doing for them. When Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and set a king over them. And I was thinking about it um, all week of what is it about a king well, what, it, what could possibly be so desirable about a, a, having a physical leader in front of you? What do they embody? That, what emotions does that give to the people? What reassurances? I was even thinking about uh, the, the king of England. Um, and uh, it's just, it's crazy because when you look at it from um, a, an objective point of view, they, they serve no purpose currently, um, just ceremonial uh, in, in the UK. And they drain an, a massive amount of wealth. Um, I was even just reading something that, that the people are kind of trying to fight right now is currently unclaimed probate. So someone passes away and they don't have any, uh, you know, direct um, uh, inheritors. Uh, the king gets their money uh, throughout all of England. And people are kind of upset about that. And they're talking about all the millions of, of dollars that essentially uh, the, the, the court has, has absorbed from people passing away without a will. Um, and yet, when you ask people, or they, they have, I have not, um, the, or if you watch the, the coronation or the royal weddings, it is massive. And people are lining up for days to get to see this and experience this. There's so much value on something that doesn't add any value, but just absorbs it, just takes it. But to them, a king displays military strength, authority. Culture, I think that's what most people in the UK, if they were in favor of the, of the monarchy, would say, oh, but it's such a valued tradition. It provides a sense of culture and a sense of prosperity. You look at the wealth that they uh, adorn themselves with, and, and, and it makes you feel like we are also on that same page, that, that we're all being prosperous together when it's not. It's really them. This has even affected a lot of... Um, religions and a lot of Christian denominations, um, and, and no problem if you came from this, but um, uh, there are many Christian denominations that really want to see their lead pastor very financially prosperous, because they are representative of the community, and so if they are successful, there's hope that, that I, I, that'll be me too, that I will rise with them, and, and um, yeah, we've visited churches and seen churches that have, uh, you know, signs for pastor parking right in the front two spots or whatever. And 
uh, and, and people want to see them driving the nicer cars, driving the... There's a show, there was a show, a reality TV show called Rich Pastors of L.A. This was, a t yeah, I know, this is a shock. It was a shock when I heard it, too. It's been long gone, but still. Also, if you are of that mindset, sorry. I th think that's what we're going to say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Me and Ryan, on behalf of us, sorry. Um, listen to God's grief, though. And that's really the, 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 the main feel, the main tone as you read this story is, is Samuel and God are just experiencing grief, disappointment. They're experiencing disappointment over the people's choice. In Psalm 81, we hear this word from the Lord. It says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels, that, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways, I would feed you the finest of wheat, and the honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. God just desiring to be the provider for his people, and yet the people are racing to find it everywhere else. Out of that fear of security, they are reaching for it. There's one more piece of the Samuel story that I find fascinating, and it comes actually from, from Samuel's own mom, Hannah, a generation before Samuel 8. It's when uh, she's uh, older in age, and, and she gets pregnant, uh, an answered prayer from God. She gets pregnant with Samuel, and uh, this is her response in 1 Samuel chapter 2. My heart exalts the Lord. My strength is exalted in my mouth. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord. No one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come forth from your mouth. And the Lord, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, but he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. This is his first point. We're going to get into all these, but this first point is God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. He keeps going, though. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off from darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversaries shall be, sh shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The second takeaway is that despite presence of human evil. God is still at work, and do not forget that. But this last part is interesting. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. What king is he talking about? This is a generation before the very first king takes the throne, Saul. This is a whole generation before that. They have never had a king. And yet, if you know, there have been prophecies for a lot of time now, even before Hannah, of one day God would send a messianic king one who would lead them in the ways of the covenant uh, more than anyone else was able to do. And this is not the first time it's been promised. 
and it won't be the last time. We get more and more vivid examples as time goes on of who they should be looking for as this messianic king. It says uh, in Isaiah 7, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and, the, and shall name him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, who are uh, one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. There are these growing prophecies of this messianic king that is to come. So, so the people are jumping the gun. The people are demanding a king like anyone else. And yet at the same time, this is grieving God and grieving Samuel. And at the same time, there is this growing prophecy of one day God will bring a king for the people. But a different kind of king. One he describes as a suffering servant. One who, who, who's just a, a different king. And, and it makes sense because he's a different king because he's a king like his kingdom. Jesus is the only king who gives and doesn't just take. Uh, one of the kind of subtitles for this whole series, more of an internal one, has been that every week should be a gospel presentation from a different deficiency that Christ meets. Every week should be a gospel presentation from a different part of the Old Testament showing a problem that Christ meets. And, and when I think about this gospel presentation, um, if you are a Christian, it's because at some point you've said what's commonly called the sinner's prayer, right? And somewhere in that prayer, typically people will talk about, you know, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Now, Savior, easy, makes sense. We're talking about saving us from our sin, giving us salvation, great. But Lord... What is it we're asking when we pray that Christ would be the Lord of our life? Lord is about authority, kingship. As he said in the beginning, as I said in the beginning, Lord is about whom you belong to. So what happens when someone changes their allegiance? If Christ is king, he deserves our honor, loyalty, and obedience. We put ourselves under his authority. Whatever he says, we are determined to do. That's, why, that's the point of the repeated lines of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that, we read that, we study, we meditate on that. But do we actually believe it and actually want it? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not just saying these like some mystical phrase. We're saying these as a prayer, things that we're petitioning for, wanting. God, let your kingdom come and be done here as it is in your own kingdom, as it is in heaven. Uh, kingdom people should submit their own will to the will of the king. Now, what does this do for us? What happens? I thought of two things, that, that, that when you declare Christ to be your king over your life, two different things that that shapes, that determines. First, it shapes our perspective of the present and of the future. It shapes your perspective. Like the people in 1 Samuel 8, who were in a predicament, who were in a difficult situation, but didn't have the perspective of trusting that God would see them through it like he had done a previous generation ago. Your trust in God becomes your security in times of fear and panic. In other words, your hope is in Christ. As you face current difficulties today, as you face current unknowns in the future, your hope is not found in your own abilities. Your hope is not found in the authority of, uh, of any other person or thing or governments over you. Those can help, and that's great, but, but your hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. 
Second of all, it shapes your values. You don't become a Christian to get what you want. You become a Christian to change what you want. Does that make sense? Wow, that's the closest to an amen. I think I've ever gotten, wow, ooh, let's go. <laughs> and, uh, but it's true. And, I, and, and many times people come to the faith uh, for, um, uh, let's say, immature reasons. And that's okay. That's okay. That's what brought us there in the first place. You know, I, I want this kind of a life, and so I'm coming to God. But, but as we grow in maturity, we learn that it doesn't, as I said, it's not about getting what you want. It's about changing what you want. To seek first his kingdom is to lay down my own agendas, my own values, my own desires, and take on instead what he values, what he desires. Jesus is a different king because he is a king like his kingdom. I'll read one last passage in Philippians 2 that displays this, his lordship, but also that he's a king of a different kind of kingdom, not the same values of, of, of our kingdoms that we see in this world. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, so he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Remember what Samuel said to the people of what a king is going to do, what a king is going to take. Let's even look at the current English monarchy, what a king takes. And yet our description of Jesus, the king of a very different kingdom, is, is the opposite. About how he is humbling himself to serve. He's emptying out of himself, even to the point of self-sacrifice. Therefore God also highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's so backwards the way our kingdoms work. It's about how this king is one who comes and empties himself and humbles himself and serves us, serves God with everything he has, emptying himself. And because of that, he is glorified. Not because of his might, not because of his power, not because of his wealth, none of that. He is a king like his kingdom, one of self-sacrificial love rather than conquest, one that glorifies humility, not dominance. He is a king of generosity and compassion rather than greed. In him we put our hope, in him we put our trust. He invites you to come and follow him, to become a citizen of his kingdom. And if this is the first time you've heard that as an invitation or the first time that's settled with you, um, consider becoming a citizen of his kingdom. Consider making that prayer of Lord Jesus be the Lord and Savior of my life. If you are ready to make that prayer, come talk with Ryan and I after service. We would love to pray with you and say that sinner's prayer with you and welcome you into his kingdom. And if you've heard that before, and you just need a reminder of that today, well, this is for you as well, of the kind of king we serve, the kind of kingdom we serve, and to always put our hope, our trust in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a king, but we almost need redefinition because you're not a king like we see around us. We're not a, you're not a king like we see throughout history. You are a different kind of king because your kingdom is different. 
So, Lord, as, as, as we as believers have said that prayer to make you uh, the Lord of our lives, I, I pray that, that you actually pull that out of us. That those of us who have made that prayer begin to live up to that calling that we have desired. We begin to exchange our values for your values. Begin to exchange our vision, our, our agendas for yours. Lord, we serve you as our King. In Jesus' name.